you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we come to you before your holy word. We pray that as we read your word, as we meditate upon it, as we hear it preached, we ask, Lord, that you would give us that same grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would know how much he has given us, that you would continue to cause your spirit to move within our hearts, that we might know how to extend that grace and love to others. We pray, Father, that you would continue to give us a a desire for the things of God and an ability to carry those things out according to your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There once was a farmer who was a, uh, uh, a very wealthy man. He owned a vast and very fertile field. Every year he would reap his harvest and there would be abundance of crops. He was also known to be very generous and kind toward his neighbors and every time there was a surplus crop he would extend that to those who were less fortunate. One year, a severe drought struck the region, leaving many families struggling just to make ends meet. And this kind-hearted farmer, despite facing the same challenges himself, uh, got a little creative and, and began to make a commitment to his neighbors, recognizing that they were about to lose their farms and, and even be able to provide for something for them to eat. So instead of harvesting all of his crops that year, he decided to set aside a a portion of his land in which he would plant crops that were particularly resistant to drought, since that's what they were facing at the time. 
And he worked tirelessly on that portion of land, putting even more effort into that portion than he did the rest of the crops for himself. And as a result, at the end of the season, we, we see that basically it was a, an overabundance of crops that his, his neighbors could benefit from. And as a result, he invited them all to come, and they all had something to eat, and they all gave thanks unto God. And as a result, we see that not only did the community benefit, but then others were inspired to do the same thing. We see other farmers who had more than enough for themselves began to plant special portions of their field to make sure that anyone who had, uh, who had nothing could have something to eat. Now, this is, uh, this is not something that's not known to us, not known to God's people who are familiar with God's Word. Uh, it's very similar, in fact, to what God commands His people to do in the Promised Land. If you remember in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, where we find uh, the second greatest commandment, you know, that portion where God says to, to love our neighbor just as we love ourselves, right? One of the first examples, one of the most tangible examples he gives to flesh out that command uh, to the Israelites who were living in the promised land at the time was that they were not to reap their fields to the edge nor gather the gleanings after the harvest, but instead allow their neighbors to enjoy this extra crop, that they could not feed for themselves. So this is a principle. It's a very common biblical principle. The only difference between that command and the story that I've just given you is that the the farmer didn't just follow the letter of the law, but he went above the letter of the law to find how could I be a blessing to my neighbors. He was very creative in how could I love them, how can I give extra attention, how could I make some sacrifices to make sure that my neighbors were not in need. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is, is, is talking about with us this morning as he's sharing two examples for the Corinthians on how they can share in this same type of grace that comes from heaven, that comes from God. And uh, the two examples he shares even surpass the example of this farmer that I've just shared with you. Um, now, give you a little bit of background. If you remember uh, about a year prior to the the second letter of Corinthians, which may in fact be the third letter to the Corinthians, but we only have two, so we call the other one second, even though it might be, does that make sense? Anyway, there was another letter in between first and second Corinthians, we think, that Paul had sent that was more of a harsh letter, at least in their minds, in which he was correcting them, rebuking them for not dealing with some sin in the church. There was a man who had committed some grave sexual offenses in the church and they did nothing about it. And so he's writing to them saying they need to act upon this and to discipline this man accordingly. In the meantime, there are also some people who had come into the church, most likely from Jerusalem, who were beginning to, to question Paul's credentials as a prophet in the church. And so they begin to undermine his authority and even say in some ways that he might be a charlatan, he might be a peddler of God's word, he's really just doing all this for his own profit and not for yours. And so you can see why during this time that uh, there would be some questioning regarding the, the, the members of the church about uh, giving to anything that Paul is asking for them to give to. But if uh, what he's saying in this text is that a year ago, the Corinthians had promised to give to this need that was taking place in Jerusalem. So they had some brothers and sisters in Christ who were originally of Jewish descent, who had come to faith in Christ, were now their brothers and sisters. 
And for some reason or another, probably still as a result of the famine that took place a few years prior, as well as some animosity between the Jews and those who had come to faith in Christ, they were experiencing quite a bit of need at the time. And so the Apostle Paul had gone to a number of churches, Gentile churches, and asking them to help to provide for the needs of their brothers in Jerusalem. And so now um, he uh, has done this, but as a result, like I said, because of what has happened in the church at Corinth, even though the Corinthians had promised to help, they had now withdrawn that help, or at least had not acted upon that promise, had not followed through on their word. And so now that things have been cleared up, which is what we talked about last week, everything has sort of been cleared up now between the two of them. Paul has explained that they misunderstood a number of things, and, and he is not the, the, the evil person that some have perceived him to be. He now again asks them, can you contribute to this need that's taking place in Jerusalem? And so one of the, one of the main reasons why he wants them to contribute is basically because they have brothers and sisters who are in need, Right? But then he also gives two other reasons that he wants them to give for as well. One of those reasons is the fact that if you remember, the Apostle Paul is constantly trying to show not just the church but the world that God has broken down the animosity, the wall between the Jew and the Gentile. So by giving these Gentile Christians the grace of God to give to their Jewish brothers who also now have shared in the same faith is showing there is a one family of God, a one people of God, one vine that these have been grafted into, if you will. But then secondly, in addition, he also wants them to give for this reason. He says that by receiving the grace of God and then demonstrating that grace by giving grace to others, you are proving your own earnestness of love for Christ and his church. In other words, you're proving in some way that you are, in fact, filled with the Spirit of God by, by promoting these acts of love. It's interesting, Paul speaks of the, the grace of giving eight times in this, this one appeal that he makes uh, to the believers here in Corinth. He keeps mentioning the word grace again and again and again. And the reason why is because giving is a clear mark of God's grace. The word grace means give. It means to give something that someone doesn't deserve. And yet they have received this type of giving many, many times. He's now telling them to respond in kind, to also act upon this type of giving. In fact, it's, um, you know, if you read the, the book of 1 John, 1 John gives a number of assurances for why someone ought to believe that they have salvation. And he promotes a number of things. You know, you, you love the saints, you love God, you know, you do these works of obedience, of char- et cetera. All these things are promoting the, the fact that you are indeed a believer who's filled with the Spirit of God. And, and we can do the same thing with a number of other things when we think about, you know, how do you know if I'm a Christian? How, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, I can look at a number of things perhaps in my life. I can say, well, you know, I love God's Word and I want to read it daily. I want to find what God wants for me as a man of God, but also how do I get to know Jesus Christ better? I'm going to go to his word. That should be some evidence that the Spirit of God is working in me to know Christ in that way. Same way, uh, I, there's a commitment to prayer that Christians make, that we want to lift up our desires daily unto God for things according to his will. We're not just trying to figure it out on our own. We're now looking to God for his guidance. We're looking to God for his strength. We're looking to God for his wisdom, things of that nature. We can also think of someone who, who really is a Christian is, is someone who wants to continue to be in the house of the Lord every Sunday. They want to be with God's people. They don't want to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, as the writer of Hebrews says, right? These are a number of ways that we can see evidence or proof that the Spirit of God is at work in us. And in this text, Paul is adding one more. 
He's saying also, by this giving of grace, not just receiving grace, but then giving grace to others, you're also showing your earnestness for the Lord, that the Lord, in in fact, is at work within you. And so uh, he he gives these examples, again, in accordance with what has already been revealed in the Gospels. If you remember Luke chapter 19, a great example, uh, Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector, the guy who probably stole uh, quite a bit of uh, resources from his neighbors, making a profit at their advantage. Uh, If you remember when Jesus comes to his house to eat, at some point in time, from the time he first hears the gospel to the time that they're eating together, he has received the grace of God. How do we know that? Well, we see this immediate transformation in his heart and in his mind, particularly in regards to his worldly possessions. If you remember, he says, he stands up at that same dinner and says, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That would have been pretty easy to do, right? To immediately give half of everything that you own to the poor, and then if anyone you had defrauded, and likely you had defrauded quite a few people if you were in the tax collecting business, to also give them quite a bit of, of, of reparations, if you will. I imagine whatever he had the day prior, he probably had close to 80% less after making that statement. 50% to the poor, maybe another 25 to 30 to pay off all the people that he's stolen from. Now he's a lot less rich than he was the day before. It took some change of heart to cause that type of change of behavior. Now compare Zacchaeus to the rich young ruler in the chapter prior, Luke 18. Jesus was testing his resolve to be a follower of Christ. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks he's kept all the laws of God. He thinks that he loves God and loves his neighbor as himself, but Jesus particularly makes this one request, this one command of him to prove that he doesn't love his neighbor at all. And he says, you know, I want you to go and and sell all that you have and give away the proceeds to the poor. And what does the Scripture say? It says he went away in sadness because he was a rich man. And he walked away from following Christ. It's in that context, if you remember, that Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, right, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, he says, what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. And we see that in Zechariah, or uh, Zacchaeus, I'm sorry. Because it's interesting, right after Zacchaeus makes this statement, Jesus says this, Behold, today salvation has come to this house, since he too is a son of Abraham. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying, I see the faith of Abraham in Zacchaeus. I see the same spirit work in Zacchaeus as originally worked in Abraham. It was this type of grace that Paul was commending to the Corinthians, many of whom were very rich in worldly goods. Uh, In fact, uh, Corinth was a very thriving commercial city on the coast of Greece, Uh, so I try not to get too much into geographical and historical things, although I know you all love those details, and I love to give them to you. I'll try not to spend too much time on them, but nevertheless, it's important to understand a little bit about geography here and history in this context. So basically, Corinth is one of 
you know, three primary cities, if you will, in the southern area of what is now Greece today, but it was called Achaia, as a region in the Roman Empire, consists of Corinth and Athens and Delphi. It's the southern region. Everybody with me so far? There's also a northern region of what today is Greece that at that time was called Macedonia. And there's still, there's actually a country called Macedonia today. It's not exactly the same uh, geographical lines. But nevertheless, the northern area consisted of another three cities that you would know better, perhaps, than the first three that I mentioned, Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi, right? All three of those are mentioned in the book of Acts. What we know, the difference between these two is that they're both, they're all in the Roman Empire, but at this time, at least, the southern area of Greece was much more wealthy than the northern area. They had come across hard times, economic times in the north, and as a result, very few people in the churches in the north had that much money. They were much poorer, if you will, than the churches in Corinth. Again, Corinth is a, is a, a trading empire, if you will. They, they send out ships everywhere from, from their coast, and they're constantly bringing in more and more revenue. And the people of the church in Corinth were benefiting from this as well. And you can even see this if you remember when he, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's, he, Paul is rebuking them because some of the rich people there were not even having communion with the poor people. They were separating themselves, if you will, and drinking and eating when others had nothing to eat or drink. There was definitely an extreme form of wealth and poverty that was going on in that church. But for the most part, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, they're all sort of in the same boat. Most of them were on the poor end of the spectrum, if you will. So it's interesting that Paul uses Macedonia as his first example of the grace of giving. For he's comparing them, in a sense, to the church at Corinth. For the two churches are like night and day. Um, one is very rich, and the other one is, is quite poor. And um, nevertheless, Paul praises God for the outpouring of God's grace upon these churches in Macedonia. They give and give and give again. Even in the midst of what he calls severe affliction and extreme poverty. Those are the words he uses, severe affliction and extreme poverty, they're continuing to give generously to the saints in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know all the specifics of what the afflictions they were going through. We know that Thessalonica, uh, there were a number of believers that were being persecuted at the time and may still be persecuting after this letter has been written. It may have spilled over, if you will, into Berea and Philippi as well. We don't know. But we know for some reason they, they had all had gone through some aspect of affliction in Macedonia and poverty as well and and nevertheless just a great movement of the spirit was in their midst showing forth the grace of god now that that shouldn't surprise us really at least in terms of the philippians we see this numerous times where paul is explaining what has happened paul is commending the philippians again and again for for their support of him personally um in fact um it's interesting it seems as if the poorer philippians were supporting Paul while he was ministering to the rich Corinthians. And we see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. Paul tells the believers in Corinth that he robbed these other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve the church in Corinth that should have been helping to provide for his needs while he was among them. But he didn't want to ask them because they were already challenging him in so many different ways and undermining his ministry by the accusations that had been made. 
But Philippians 4.15, Paul is commending the brothers in Philippi for being the only church that partnered with him financially from the very beginning of his gospel ministry. And so we see again and again the Philippians are making sacrifice after sacrifice to help Paul, to help the brothers in Jerusalem, and the brothers in Corinth are just sitting in ease, and they're not doing anything. What's more, Paul says, is that this support by the Philippians was totally unexpected. Because they were so poor, Paul never actually asked them to give to this particular need in Jerusalem. Even though we explicitly see a request of this uh, kind in reference to the Galatians and the Corinthians, he's saying, I want you to give to this need. We don't see this in Philippi. Uh, The Philippians are giving without even being asked to give. Uh, It seems in part because Paul didn't think that they could give because they were so poor themselves. And yet they surprise him again and again in terms of their giving. Uh, And and contrary to his expectation, uh, uh, in verse 4, it says, They begged him earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, that, that, that should astound us. Normally when we think of someone begging, we normally think of a panhandler, right? They're they're begging, please, sir, can you spare some change? Please, sir, can you give me some money? But in this case, it's the other way around. They're begging Paul, tagging at his coat, please, sir, can we give you money? Please, can we help contribute financially in some way? Please, can we aid our brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem? It's the exact opposite of what we would normally expect But because in some way or another, these believers in Philippi had come to believe what Jesus said in Acts 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. They considered a blessing to give and not just receive. But it wasn't just the fact that they begged him to give. But Paul actually says they considered a favor to them personally that Paul would allow them to give. He's like, please do us this, this favor. Please, please help us. We, we want to give. We have to give. They considered it a personal blessing and favor to them if they could just assist their brothers and sisters in Christ in some way. So contrary to what Paul was being accused of, he's not twisting anybody's arm here. In fact, it's the other way around. The Philippians are twisting his arm. Please, let us give. Then in verse 3, Paul says this. He says, they gave according to their means and even beyond their means in helping the saints in Jerusalem. Now, what exactly does that mean? (laughs) Well, it means in some way they were giving money they didn't have. Doesn't mean that they were, you know, investing in stocks and hoping that it comes out right, or lottery tickets or anything of that nature. But rather, in some way or another, either they were doing additional work so that they could give money to this particular cause, or else they were sacrificing some of their own basic needs in order to meet the basic needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Now, this should remind us a little bit about uh, the poor widow, if you remember, in Luke 21, another comparison to the rich young ruler that Jesus makes in that particular gospel. If you remember, toward the end of his ministry, he sees this poor widow giving the last two copper coins that she has and putting them into the offering box. And he sees this after he's seen all of these other people give a lot more money than she did. And yet he says that her contribution was so much the greater because she gave out of her poverty, whereas they gave out of their abundance. 
Now notice very carefully, this is not what Paul is commending the Corinthians to do. He's not saying, give beyond your means. He's just saying, give according to your means. But he's giving the example of the Philippians to say, they're doing that and so much more, and yet you're not doing anything. How wrong is that? In fact, uh, if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the original appeal that Paul made to them, verses 1 and 2, says this. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So he's saying, put something aside as you bring in income. As you meet your needs and whatever is left over, whatever abundance you have, decide to give something to help in this particular cause. Again, he's not, he's not telling them, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. He's not saying anything like what Zacchaeus didn't say, well, you know, sell 50% of what you have and give to the poor. He's just saying, as you prosper, as you have an abundance, as you have more than you need, he's saying, give a portion of that and consider giving that in aid to the poor in Jerusalem. Again, Paul's not talking about tithing here. He's not talking about a particular percentage to give to God's church or God's people in that sense, but rather he's saying whatever is that, that comes out of your heart, whatever is, is freely coming to you, knowing that you have something to give by the Spirit's work in your, in your heart, give this to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If the Philippians could give out of their poverty... Surely you Corinthians can give out of your wealth, right? And that leads us to the second example he gives, verse 9. There, he speaks of the gracious, gracious giving of Jesus himself for the sake of the church. Unlike the Philippians, as you know, Jesus did not originally come from poverty, right? Right? We know that Jesus was alive long before the incarnation, Right? We do have Trinity concepts and incarnation concepts here. Jesus was living in the splendor of heaven, the opulence, the extreme wealth of heaven, the perfect fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was out of that wealth that he gave to us in our poverty, right? It's not just the fact that he gave up the riches of heaven and became poor and lived in a poor family, but rather... Throughout his whole life, he's giving, giving, giving out of his wealth to love others. Even in his sufferings, he's giving of his own body in love to others. And he's showing us this is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ. It's out of his love for us that he made these sacrifices, giving up riches in order that we might know something of his comforts, know something of his own wealth. Again, doesn't doesn't mean you know, what some people have tried to make it mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus has now come to make us all rich, right? That he's going to come to make us all physically wealthy in a variety of ways. He, he's primarily speaking of the spiritual riches that we have received in Christ Jesus. But because of his victory over death, because of his victory over hell and over sin, there is an inheritance that is also given to the people of God. For one day there will be an extreme wealth that is given to every single person who trusts in Christ. He literally gives us his wealth. We will have it all. We will inherit all the earth, he says, and all the riches that come with that. 
Now, Paul's not saying to the Corinthians that they need to leave all their riches and to die an agonizing death in order to follow Christ. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying if you want to know the blessing of Christ, you have to have the mindset of Christ in loving your neighbor. Why did Christ do all this? Certainly he did it out of glory uh, for his own father, but also out of love for us. He gave up his riches that he might give us something in our poverty. So Paul tells us in verse 7 that they had already demonstrated, this is the Corinthians, they had already demonstrated their spiritual gifts in a number of ways. They've demonstrated it through their gifts of faith, their gifts of knowledge, and, and even their gifts of love, which is actually saying something quite a bit, because if you remember in 1 Corinthians, he's questioning their love, saying they have all this knowledge and all this faith, supposedly, but they're not loving one another. Now it seems as if maybe they've made some strides in that area, but he's saying, in addition to that, I want to see you grow in this area of grace, of being able to give grace not only to one another, but to your brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they might be. It's interesting, uh, back, back in 1 Corinthians, he encourages the Corinthians to pursue the greater gifts, and he even said, you know, to, to pray for these things, that you might be more useful to God and to the church, and certainly it would work the same way with the grace of giving. For someone to grow in this area, sometimes certainly the Holy Spirit just gives certain people that, that extra gift, but we're also, we're also sought, we're, we're taught to seek out the greater gifts, you don't have the desire and the ability to give now in that way, do you pray and ask God, can I give in this way in the future? Could you bless me that I might be a blessing, that I might use what you've given me in service unto the Lord and of love to my brothers? Again, notice he's not commanding them to do this. This is not just a bare command. Rather, he wants them to have the desire to give that they don't currently have. He's working with their heart, you see. He's trying to persuade them of the mind of Christ, trying to persuade them of the goodness of the Lord and how it's demonstrated through the spiritual gift of giving. And he tells them in verse 10 that this act of grace is not a detriment to them personally at all but rather an extreme blessing to them that as they continue to grow in their ability to give grace in this way, they too begin to take on the joy of the Lord. It'll add to them in so many different ways. All, I mean, after all, why do most people want money? They think it's going to bring happiness. They think it's going to bring joy. But here Paul is saying, no, you can have more joy by giving than you can by receiving if you see it in the right way. And so Paul's saying it's not just the act of giving, but it's the desire to love your neighbor that counts. Your desire to see Christ glorified that counts. It's not just the act of giving itself. In fact, it reminds me of a story of a church member in Scotland a couple of generations ago who accidentally put into the offering plate a crown piece instead of a penny. Big difference in those two coins. When he realized what he had done, he, as surreptitiously as possible, asked the usher, uh, can you give me the coin back? I didn't mean to give that particular coin. And immediately the usher, who was also Scottish, and if you know the Scottish well, immediately said, in once and forever. And then the man said, oh, well, at least I'll get credit for it in heaven. 
And the usher said, no, you won't. <laughs> you only get credit for the penny. Because the Lord considers the heart and not just what is given. You see, you don't get credit for something you didn't mean to give. <laughs> it works the other way around, though, as well. And this was the issue that the Corinthians were having. They had had the heart. They had had the desire to give, and yet did not follow through with the giving. And, and that's, that's very important, too, because I think oftentimes, you know, sometimes we're, we're feeling pretty religious. Uh, we're, we're feeling pretty spiritual and, and good about ourselves. You know, particularly, you know, maybe we sing a, a good hymn or a song, spiritual song of some kind, and, and, you know, we feel close to God. Sometimes we might be meditating on a particular passage of Scripture, and it just it really hits us, and, and, and we just love God. And then we don't act upon it. He's saying it's, it's both and. It's, it's the desire does count, but then the action counts as well. The two of them go hand in hand. When someone desires to give and then actually gives, it's both a blessing to the one who receives as well as to the one who gives. Of course, I mean, I, you sort of have to state in these times in which we live, uh, this is not any aspect of communism uh, Paul's not asking uh, everybody in the church to sell all their lands and to distribute it equally to every single person in the church. He also is not saying uh, a very common term that's thrown around in our, our culture today is the idea of uh, uh, income inequality, as if somehow we're going to make everyone have the same income. It's impossible. You wouldn't be able to do that even if we tried. And if you remember, even Jesus said, what, he says that the rich and the poor, you'll have them always with you. There will always be distinguishing differences. He's not suggesting that we eradicate any aspect of private property or anything of that nature. Even if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was not in the fact that they had kept some of the, the, the proceeds for themselves, but they had lied about giving all of it when they had, in fact, kept some of it for themselves. Everyone is entitled to their own private property and allowed to give what they want to give. It's not an expectation of giving against your will. Again, the desire counts as well as the act of giving itself. But in, in verses 13 and 14, he says this. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Again, what does he mean by that fairness? He's not, he's not using the word justice here, but it's the idea that at, at some point, you may be in the same predicament that they're in now. And by giving out of your abundance to help meet their basic needs, there may come a time later where they have an abundance to meet your basic needs. And that seems to be the issue that they seem to be unconcerned about at the moment. So he quotes to them from that passage that, that Mark read earlier in Exodus 16. If you remember in Exodus 16... Uh, the Lord had led the Israelites through the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness, and as a result, he purposely brings them to the point in which they have nothing to eat so that he can show them his provision, his goodness to them, that they learn to trust him, they learn to ask him and to pray to him for what their needs are. And if you remember, he tells them specifically to go out and do something, that he's going to rain manna from heaven, the manna falls to the ground, and he tells each household to go and collect however much they need to fill their bellies that they would have enough to eat, that no one would go hungry. And they all did that. Some of them gathered more, some of them gathered less, but at the end of the day, there was nothing left over. 
all of them had their needs met. Now, later on, as you know, as soon as they get into the promised land, it stops raining. No more manna from heaven. How is God going to provide for their needs? Sometimes there's going to be an abundance of crops. Sometimes there's going to be less than an abundance of crops. There's going to be poor. There's going to be rich. Why does God continue to allow this? Because he wants to continue to show the goodness of the Lord, but now through his people. As his people take on the mind of Christ and begin to love each other in this way, there will always be an abundance of some to help with those who have less. It's to promote the unity of the people of God, to promote the love of God's people for God and for each other. And so that's exactly what, what Paul is saying here. It's, it's not just a principle for the Old Testament people of God, but it's the same principle for the New Testament people of God with the church today. You know, uh, in, in fact, in just a minute, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, we normally think of the Lord's Supper as, as the body and blood of Christ, and absolutely it is, but it also is a, a sign and seal of of God's corporate body, meaning all of us together as well, unified and learning to love each other. We're discerning all of the body in that regard. And it's interesting because the, the word that Paul uses in reference to the Lord's Supper is the word koinonia. You've heard that term before, right? Normally we think of the word fellowship. Now normally when you think of the word fellowship in the American version, of you think of eating food in a fellowship hall or maybe here in the sanctuary that turns into the fellowship hall. But the word koinonia is used of food, it's used of the Lord's Supper, and it's also used here in our text in verse 4. When Paul goes and he says that the the believers in, in Philippi were begging to share in the fellowship of the saints in Jerusalem. But the word in the English translation, as we've translated in the ESV, is relief. To share in the relief of the poor. Now why does... Paul used the same Greek word in each of these occasions because it's, it's, it's all in reference to the same concept. Koinonia is the idea that we share together in common something with Christ. We share the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And as a result of sharing that in common, we want to then share it in common in this way with each other as well. Every time we take communion, we're taking it together. We're waiting for each other to take it together. And then we're continue to, to, to manifest that throughout the week. It's not just a sign here that we only do on Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week as well, we're sharing that with the people of God. Whether that's here, or whether that's in Ukraine, or whether that's in Malawi, or wherever it is in the world, it's, it's the Lord's Supper is a table for all the Christians throughout the world. And it's a sign and seal of that, that we are continually showing forth the love of Christ through the fellowship of his church. Now, how do we promote that? The last, uh, I'll give you my last uh, 30 seconds of a sermon. How do you apply that? To me, it really always, it always comes back down to prayer first, right? When we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, I keep going back to the Lord's Prayer again and again and again. When we're taught to pray, we're not taught to pray this way. Give me this day my daily bread. How are we taught to pray? Give us this day our daily bread, right? You've noticed before that in the Lord's Prayer, it's not meant to be a prayer that I pray in isolation. You can pray it apart from other people, but it's the idea that even when I'm praying by myself, I'm not just thinking about myself. I'm thinking about all God's people. I'm not just praying for my temptations. I'm praying for their temptations. I'm not just praying for my provision. I'm praying for their provision. 
So again, I tell you, if you take this prayer seriously, this prayer literally, and you begin to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, even when you're all by yourself, it will continue to promote in you the mindset that you'll care for the provisions of your neighbor. You'll care that God provides for their needs, which will then also cause you to be creative in how you can help meet those needs, preparing you for the time and the opportunity when someone has a need that you don't have to wait for the church to always meet that need, that you can meet it yourself as an individual. And then collectively do that together with your brothers and sisters in Christ to meet greater needs. But that's the love of Christ being demonstrated in the life of the church. How does the community outside know that we are Christians? By our love. And how is that love demonstrated? Through that grace. So contrary to what you might expect, we're going to be talking about this, uh, this same topic for four weeks. So for all of those of you who don't like giving, you might want to go somewhere else for a week or two. But I tell you, I'm not doing this to ask for anything particular from you. Uh, We're doing this because, well, I'm in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's going to continue to be talked about. But at the same time, because it is a very important aspect of our life as a Christian, learning to grow in the sanctification of the Spirit, to grow in the grace of God as we learn to love God and to love our neighbor. And for those who have the Spirit of God, they want to grow in this way. And if I don't, Maybe I should ask God, why am I still so hard-hearted about these particular things? What is it that I'm holding back from you, Lord, that would hinder me in some way from giving in the grace of God just as I've received it from Jesus Christ? Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us this day as we contemplate uh, what the Word has said to us and what the Word continually says to us is that as it divides soul and spirit, as it continues to penetrate into the recesses of our heart. We pray, Father, we will not go home and forget what it's what it said to us. We would not be like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and immediately walks away and, and forgets what he looks like. Lord, we pray that we would meditate upon this and we would learn to pray in this way, that we would learn to be um, a people who, who know you, who love you, and who are learning to grow in love for our neighbor as well. Lord, give us more of your grace that we might be more grace givers, we pray.